Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. And I'm Nam Kiwanuka. Well, if you're brand new, welcome to the show. This is our eighth season. We have an exciting lineup of docs and interviews coming this year. But first, we should talk about today's episode. Today, we're doing our annual look at the nominees for Best Documentary, featuring at the 94th Academy Awards. And joining us, as always, is TVO's executive producer for documentaries, Jane Jankovic. Hi, Jane. Hi, Jane. Hi, hi. Thanks for inviting me again this year. It's always an interesting discussion. Thanks for coming back. Well, this year's five nominees are Ascension, Attica, Flea, Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, and Writing with Fire. And just like last year, each of us is going to choose one film to champion for best documentary feature. And I think it's our custom to let our guests go first. So, Jane, why don't you start us off? Ah, okay. Well, I, I wanted to take a look at Flea. It's, it's a directed by Danish-French uh, director Jonas Poer Rasmussen. And the um, doc won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. It was also featured at TIFF last year. What does that mean for you? So this doc uses animation mixed in with some archival to tell the story of an Afghan family that's fleeing the early 1970s after the Soviets pull out and there's a civil war between the Mujahideen and the Taliban. Uh, it's told from the perspective of the youngest son um, who eventually escapes to Denmark and eventually comes out as a gay man. So there's a lot of story that's packed into this doc. And it's as much about the main character coming to terms with his past and being able to tell his story as it is about the story itself. So all the characters are animated. None of them look like they do in real life. All the names are changed. I don't know about the locations, but it's totally anonymous. It's the only way that the main character who is called um, Amin in the doc would tell his story. But the voice of Amin is real, and as is the director's voice, because he and Amin are friends. And there are some contemporary characters in the film, like Amin's partner, who also um, has his own voice in, in the um, in the doc. So, you know, as a journalist, it's a little uncomfortable. Uh, initially, you start thinking, well, where's the accountability? You know, how do I know the story is real? But, you know, big parts of the doc are excerpts from interviews with Amin. And then there are parts of the doc that are scripted. Uh, which Amin approved and recorded. So, you know, it's at least the version of the story that Amin wants to tell. And that's what POV docs are anyway. So I kind of put that aside and just moved on. As an animated film, I think overall, Flea really worked for me. You know, it took the film out of the bucket of, oh, another refugee story or, oh, another coming of age story and put it into a space that I think it has great potential to find new audience or fresh audience for these stories. There are holes in the story, but there are holes in every refugee story. And the animation works especially well when he recounts um, the trafficking experiences that members of his family went through and then especially of his own. I mean, I found myself holding my breath more than once. So given that the film is totally anonymous, you know, one of the questions I think went through my mind and may 
go through other people's minds as well. Like, well, then why not make it a drama or make it a docudrama or make it a radio doc or make it a podcast? And in fact, Rasmussen initially planned to do a radio documentary of this doc, but he ended up doing it as an animation. And I'm, I'm so glad that he did. I like this doc as an animation. Um, Amin is an adult now, but he's a child and a teenager for much of the story. And so the animation is really in sync with telling a story from that point of view. And that's not saying that the animation is for kids here. It's, it's much more sophisticated than that. But I'm, I'm gonna put on my TDO hat and uh, I think it's a fantastic entry point for a younger audience that doesn't know much about Afghanistan or has not been exposed to the refugee story other than fleetingly in their social media or who are struggling with their sexuality within traditional cultures. So, you know, I think you can't start practicing or witnessing empathy too young or too old. Um, and I think this film has potential to make that happen for more people than if it was a traditional dog. So this film has, has uh, created history by being nominated in three categories, best documentary feature, best international feature film, best animated feature. I don't think it'll win in any of those categories, but the competition is so stiff, but I think it's, what did I, say? I think it was so nice, nice. Sorry, I used that word, but I think it's great to see that it was so well recognized. Um, and I hope more people will go see it. I really liked it and I think the animation worked for me as well, partly because I think it, it filled in the gaps that I guess a, a, a normal documentary couldn't. I mean, uh -huh. just for example, I mean, he's coming to terms with his sexuality when he's young. And one of the ways he does that, or one of the ways he, I guess, realizes that he's gay is he's a big fan of Jean-Claude Van Damme. And there's a, there's a very funny scene where uh, he's watching Bloodsport, this awesome movie from the 80s of Jean-Claude Van Damme. And at one point, Jean-Claude Van Damme winks at him. And there's little moments like that in <laughs> yeah. the film that I think are really nice touches that I think, yeah, you really couldn't do in a kind of traditional doc. I, I thought, you know, just, you know, seeing this kid get his, have his life uprooted, uh, living kind of a normal life in, in Afghanistan, then having to flee to Russia and then try to leave Russia and then get sent back to Russia and then try to leave again, uh, it was harrowing. And I, I absolutely loved it. I, I agree with you. I don't know if it's going to win in any of the categories it's nominated for, but it definitely, uh, I think it will definitely appeal to a lot of audiences who maybe are not aware of the situation with facing refugees. And this might be a way in because, again, it is animated and it's a different way of telling a story. And I just, yeah, I really, really recommend it. Well, I think we should go on to our next doc, and that would be uh, Ascension. And Nam, why don't you tell us a little bit about that one? So um, Ascension is directed by Chinese-American director Jessica Kingdon. And um, I always, even when I read a book, I go to the very back to read the acknowledgement. But um, at the very end of this film, she has a very touching dedication to her grandfather. I think it's just a way of finding out why people are doing the things that they do. Um, and two words to describe this documentary. It's jarring. And even though there is no narrator, 
it also feels very personal. So let me explain. Uh, the dog is separated <laughs> into three um, different working classes, factory workers, middle class, and the super rich. At the beginning of the documentary, there are scenes from a job fair uh, for factory workers, uh, instructions that you can apply if you're older than 38. It even says explicitly, don't even think about applying for this job, even if you're one day over 38. Um, no hair dye. And I think the message is clear that you have to be young um, and physically fit. The music throughout the uh, documentary is composed so it fits almost perfectly to the scene. It's beautifully shot. At the beginning of the documentary, there's an overhead shot of a graveyard of yellow bicycles. And you can just see the pa the camera panning. You, th you think it's only a few bicycles, and then it pans out and just shows like the excess, the waste. But there's also beauty in the garbage. Um, this is also another shot that I thought was so beautiful at an amusement park. Um, lots of seamless transitions. Again, there's no narration, um, but somehow you do get a sense of what the documentary is about. Lots of moments of uh, levity um, in a factory where life-size sex dolls are made. For me, I was kind of, again, jarring. It was like, what is happening? Um, two workers have an exchange about how much perfume the other is wearing, even though they're both wearing masks. And one says, oh, you know, she must have a rabbit nose. And then she says, oh, it must be a dog nose because how was she able to smell my perfume and I'm like all the while the women are putting together this rather realistic sex doll and it all seems kind of mundane because they're talking about perfume uh, and I couldn't stop thinking about you know who buys these dolls why aren't these women wearing better protective gear um you know <laughs> and obviously they're making these products for people in the west at an etiquette class, the specialist asked the attendees, how many teeth do you show when you smile at work? Do you guys know? How many teeth are you supposed to show at work? Six, seven, eight. Ten, eight, twenty. Eight. I have no idea. See, I don't know how many teeth I are mean, in my mouth. Everybody seemed to know this answer. It's eight, and it has to be the top uh, the top eight, not the bottom. Uh, another scene that stayed with me is towards the end of the documentary. There's a model who's getting her pictures at a park-like setting, and she's wearing a, la a large hat to protect her from the sun. The camera pans to a gardener who's working in the same space, and that gardener is also wearing a huge hat, but is quietly pulling weeds in this giant green space. And they also have a scarf around their neck and their face. And the model says something like, oh, the sun is killing me. Um, a scene like this says so much about class. You know, again, there is no commentary. There's no narrator. The pictures and the people on camera and their interaction says it all. The model continues to complain about the heat. And finally, when the photographer gets the shot, they walk off without a word or acknowledgement to the gardener. Again, it's this idea of you work hard uh, to get the things that you need, but you have all these characters in the back who are supposed to do this work for you. When you do get to a certain point, like when you're the super rich, you have these people working behind the scenes and they don't really have any autonomy. Uh, there are parts in the documentary where people do talk about the politics, but you quickly see a pivot from the other characters to kind of like pull it back from talking about politics and just getting the work done. Um, it is a it it is a striking indictment on class um, in China and what the Chinese dream is. It's it, it's a terrific documentary. Yeah, I I, I it remind me a lot of Up the Yangtze. 
which is a documentary from many years ago, uh, looking at China's modernization. And it was really striking just to see how Western norms have influenced Chinese culture. While at the same time, they're making products for Western consum- consumption. You mentioned the life-size sex toys <laughs> that are all white um, earlier. So I, I thought that was interesting. I, I guess it was maybe the, my least f- favorite of the five nominees. I think just, I think the, you know, it's a, it's sort of a fly on the wall approach to documentary filmmaking, which I have some issues getting into. It, it's hard for me to kind of get into a, a film when it's sort of just w- observing people, not always, but just sometimes. Uh, but it is a very interesting look at just, again, ri- uh, China's, uh, rise and, and just how Western norms are influencing the way, uh, Chinese society is evolving, and uh, that's always very, you know, interesting at least. And uh, yeah, good pick. Yeah, I want before because um, I, I want to hear Jane's reaction to it, but I, I wanted to mention my kids. I think kids also notice what's happening. One day uh, recently, my daughter says to me, "Mom, why do all my toys come? Why do all my toys have made in China?" And I didn't realize that she noticed that, but she picked up on that. So I thought that I should mention that. I, I'm unfortunately I did not get a chance to see Ascension, but um, listening to Nam, uh, it, it is a, and, and to you, Colin, it is a certain kind of film. It sounds like it's very observational, and you you either sort of let yourself go to that and let everything tell the story in its own way, rather than be um, you know narrated forward uh, and through. So um, anytime there's a story that it can just tell itself uh, through its imagery or through the interactions that you're able to witness, um, is always of high interest for me. So I, I really want to see this dog now. Great. Well, I'm going to talk about Writing with Fire. It was directed by Rintu Thomas and Shushmit Ghosh. I want to shout them out because this is an incredible documentary. It really appealed to the journalist in me. It's basically about a group of women journalists in India that run a newspaper and a YouTube channel. And what makes it unique is that this is, an, this is the only newspaper in India that's run entirely by women. And they all come from uh, the Dalit community in India. And the Dalit are essentially, uh, India has the caste system. And uh, the Dalit are kind of known as the untouchables. And sadly, the women from this group bear the brunt of the hardship that this community has to deal with. And the film itself is following um, some of the journalists from this newspaper. Uh, Specifically, uh, there's one woman named Mira, who's sort of the, I think probably the most accomplished of the journalists, or well, at least she's, she's, uh, uh, comes from a very, I guess, educated background. And then there's another woman named Sunita, and uh, we see them uh, just doing their job, basically uh, interviewing women who've been uh, raped. They uh, interview miners who are working in an illegal mine and fighting the uh, mafia that runs it. Uh, we see them cover the election uh, that sees Prime Minister Modi's BJP party get uh, reelected on a very Hindu nationalist platform. So they're just we're just watching them do their job. <laughs> While they're doing this, you know, their popularity, their newspaper uh, just keeps growing and their YouTube channel just gets millions and millions more people watching. They start to expand their coverage to all parts of India. And we see some of their personal lives as well. As I said, said Mira's, uh, you know, she's very educated, but she's also struggling to find housing because of her um, of her caste that she comes from, and uh, Sunita, you know, she's a former miner. She, her family actually expects her to get married. You know, there's some reluctance, I guess, to embrace 
these women uh, for doing journalism. I think they'd rather them settle into more traditional roles. I think what really appealed to me about this documentary was just how how fearless they are. You know, like they're very like assertive and they don't take crap from anybody <laughs> you know like they're talking to politicians they're talking to police and they they're really it's it's that you know that old cliche about holding truth to power i mean they really fulfill it and but they, you know they can show sensitivity you know when they're talking to women who've been raped or even their family members still assertive though you know because they they're, they're trying to do a story here and i just thought that was really uh moving to see and i think what what makes them also successful is the fact that they're from the community themselves that they're reporting on. So it gives them an understanding and I think a little bit of um, uh, credibility, I guess, to uh, approach these stories. You know, they're not necessarily outsiders coming in, you know, like, you know, sometimes we're, we're criticized in the West, you know, if we're uh, reporting on a community, like, but we're from Toronto or from New York, you know, we're going in, flying in to do a story and then leaving, you know, it's not the same with these, these women. They're, they're from the the areas that they're reporting on. And I just have to say, you know, it's it's a really incredibly moving story about journalism. If you like anything like uh, uh, All the President's Men or Spotlight, you know, you should check this out. It's just a, it's a really great story about journalism. I remember listening to this pitch in the in, the, in its pre-production days, and um, there was very strong reaction to it, a positive reaction. Everybody wanted it, inclu- including, you know, TVOs. We kind of tracked this film for a few years, and we all in the end, we didn't end up getting the Canadian rights for it. But um, I, I'm really happy to see that this doc is getting such good buzz. Well, A, that it was made, which is fantastic, but also that it's getting such good buzz. And I think that's surprising to me because it's about low caste women in a patriarchal community. But then, you know, when you see what they've been able to achieve with a few smart bill, a, a few smartphones and um, a lot of guts, it's truly amazing and inspiring. I mean, it's a, it's a doc about how you can make a change even in your own sort of corner. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, these women are, are something else. They're just positive, move forward, glass half filled kind of, and they just go for it. Uh, and they're still doing it. So it's great. They haven't been shut down. I love an underdog story. I'm yeah. always rooting. <laughs> Whenever I hear a story like that, I'm like, okay, I'm rooting for them. Yeah. Um, but from what you've just said, Colin, I think it's, um, maybe it sounds also like an indictment on, uh, what we're not doing as journalists um, on this side of the world. I think um, journalism has become uh, a profession that people are not trusting us as much as they used to in the past. And I think it's the responsibility of journalists to figure out what it is that we're, uh, what we're, where we're falling short and how to rectify that. I don't think it helps us when we become a bit defensive and say, well, you know, you know, I think when you see a story like that where people are, you know, holding truth to power and in situations where they could get killed, right? Um, you know, uh, it shows how brave uh, journalists around the world are in doing this profession and um, why we need to fight harder f- for it here um, on this side of the world. Well, I want to touch on two other docs uh, briefly because uh, they're both very good. And one of them is Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. And this got a lot of buzz when it came out last summer. It's a film about the Harlem Cultural Festival of 1969. 
which is the same year that Woodstock took place. It was directed by Questlove, who's the drummer for The Roots, which is an awesome hip-hop band. And it's a look at this music festival that was kind of forgotten about, but had some of the best artists of that period. It wasn't just about the music. 1969 was a change of era in the black community. The styles were changing. Music was changing. And revolution was coming together. We are a new people. It has Sly and the Family Stone, it has Stevie Wonder, they had The Fifth Dimension, Nina Simone, Mahalia Jackson, all these really awesome artists from that time. And because I think it took place during Woods, the same year as Woodstock, Woodstock got a lot of the attention. But this film, you know, like it captures some of the some of the best acts just in their prime. And you get to see audience members who were there interviewed. And one thing that I remember one audience member saying was he was a kid when it happened. And I guess he, you know, he didn't, he, he wasn't even sure if it actually happened because no one, I guess the footage had been gone for so long. No one had actually seen it for so many years that people were just like, did this actually happen? And then when he saw the footage, he actually got really emotional watching it. Cause he's like, I wasn't crazy. This actually took place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Could I- can I add on to that? Of course. <laughs> um, you know, it's to me, uh, it, uh, the fact that this person needed validation for an event that happened for a lot of us, like I I had no idea that this happened. So this was the summer of 1969 and Woodstock had about 400,000 people in attendance, right? Uh, the Harlem Cultural Festival had 300,000. So it wasn't a numbers thing. Again, I think it's just an indictment of who gets to tell stories, like who tells history. Um, and so I guess the tapes of this event were in the basement of producer Hal Tulchin, and they were unseen and forgotten, uh, except by the people who were there and people like uh, Questlove. I'm glad you said that he was from The Roots, because I think a lot of people <laughs> <laughs> are like, oh, that's the dude from, you know, Jimmy Fallon House Band. No, he's the drummer from the legendary Roots Band. Um, but yeah, again, how many stories are there that we don't know about because the gatekeepers at the time might not have thought that this is the story to tell. And I'll just add one more thing. I was at the 30th anniversary of Woodstock, uh, 1999. You were there? I was there. We went, yep. That was, oh my God. <laughs> I was the videographer for Ed the Sock. So it was pure <laughs> madness. Um, and being in that environment and seeing how that event brought people together and eventually it ended up in chaos. Even though we were there, no one brought out uh, the uh, the Harlem Cultural Festival. No one spoke about it. So I'm so glad that this is out there um, and this history is not going to be forgotten. Um, There's an interesting tidbit that I read <clears throat> about this fest. Um, originally, the title was going to be Black Woodstock, and they were all set on that. And I understand the marketability of that, right, and the SEO around having Woodstock in the title. But I'm so glad that it was changed to something that is not a comparative to something else. I like that its value was not measured as the black version of something that was very iconic and very white. So, um, you know, it's more and it's different than that. And I I'm, I'm, was really a bit mortified when I heard that it was originally gonna be called Black Woodstock and I'm thrilled that they changed it to something else. Yeah, it's definitely a better title. And yeah, and, yeah it fits and it the much soundtrack, better. woo. Yeah, no, incredible. <laughs> Uh, last film, I, we talked about this a little bit last season. It's called Attica. I watched it at TIFF. Wonderful film. Very harrowing film. Very um, difficult film to sit through. It was 70% black and brown. Prisoners, all white guards. 
What could go wrong? Grab the guards, grab the keys. All hell broke loose. But it's basically about the prison riot in 1971, uh, where Attica's uh, prison population uh, rose in rebellion against the awful treatment by the guards and by the system. The state troopers took it back uh, when the government sent them in. Uh, dozens of people were killed, dozens of uh, corrections officers and uh, inmates, of course. And the film is just a mix of archival footage with uh, first-person accounts with survivors and um, just, you know, really awful, no no accountability, you know? Like, I mean, there was a paltry settlement given in, to the vict- to the survivors uh, many years ago, but uh, no one was at, at any sort of official level was actually held responsible. And it's just one of those docs that if you're really interested in social justice, it'll just make you really angry. <laughs> but it's really worth watching, I think. And all right, well, I guess this is the most important question. Who is going to take home the gold? Jane, why don't you tell us? <laughs> tell us who you think is going to win. You know I get it wrong almost every single week. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not making any predictions because I always get them wrong. So I'll just listen I to you. I have yet play. to win an Oscar pool, you know? So I think, uh, <laughs> oh my God, I don't know. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I think maybe Summer of Soul will will take it, even though it's more of a curation than it is, you know, as, as, as a, a story. But I mean, he brings in sort of present day um people who were there and who were a part either as uh, fans or um, as part of the music. And um, yeah, I think it's just, it's a really good American story that uh, is, uh, discusses all those issues in a, in a fresh way. Um, and it's also such a relief that something like that did not just sit there and collect dust until it disintegrated. And so I think it's great that it was able to be brought out of the dark and, um, you know, for everybody to see. So. I'm going to throw my vote there that it probably, it may go to Summer of Love, uh, Summer of Soul, sorry. What about you now? It was the Summer of Love too. Well, it's <laughs> stuck at all. But maybe, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of thinking that maybe that will get it because music has a way of bringing people together, right? Um, I, I feel like we're living on the edge worldwide that um, that might be the way to go or maybe even flee because that's something that's going to be top of mind for a lot of people. Um, Life for refugees, what that looks like. Uh, But Colin, you always seem to win the Oscar pool. So what do you think? Well, I don't know. I remember the last time we did an Oscar pool, but I I think I agree with both of you. I think Summer Soul has it. I do think that because it's on Disney Plus and it's easier to watch, Mm -hmm. I think that plays a part in uh, its, its chances. Uh, I do think Flea is top of mind, though, because of the, the the subject matter. So I think that also has a shot. And I think both of them have actually done pretty well at, a, at various awards. So it'll be an interesting race. I I, I do know that I've noticed that a couple of uh, previous music docs like Amy or 20 Feet from Stardom have also uh, won Best Documentary Features. So, you know, I think there's a good chance that Summer of Soul, they might recognize it. It is a more, much a more feel-good story, but anything's possible. And there really is there's a big trend, I think. There's far more music docs than usual <clears throat> being released now, you know, with the Beatles Get Back, The Velvet Underground, Summer of Soul, The Spark Brothers, Framing Britney Spears. There's another biggie doc that's out there. So yeah. I think there must be a, a, an appetite for that. And I think that might be kind of a, uh, you know, reaction to COVID. Just like there's a lot of sports docs out. Usually sports docs, nobody, well, broadcasters don't commission them because people don't watch them. If you're interested in sports, you're watching the sport. But I know there's a lot of sports related docs out there as well. So I think COVID has had uh, an impact on sit back and watch kind of programming. Well, Jane, thank you so much for joining us today. This was great. (laughs) 
they're, they're my thoughts and do not represent, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Jane. Appreciate oh, it. Great. Thank you. Great to be here. And that's the podcast. While you're here, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us? It helps new listeners to find the show. You can follow me on Twitter at ColinEllis81. And you can follow me at Namshine, all one word. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hollowell, and executive producer Lori Few. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next screening. <laughs> <laughs>